You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Good evening. I will be reading from Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Honored that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. And uh, we hope, if you're visiting with us in particular, that you've been encouraged. And we do look forward to meeting you out of the information table after the service. I'd love to meet you as well. I'd be up front here for a moment. I'd love to say hello. Uh, Last night, our family uh, sat down to watch a concert of one of our favorite bands uh, in our living room, and um, we, you know, sat together and sang these songs together that we all kind of knew and enjoyed it tremendously, and there was this moment at the very end of the concert that I wasn't prepared for. I didn't know that they were going to do this. This is a big, big... uh, band like worldwide you know popular band and um, they're a big deal and, and at the very end of the concert the the lead singer um, s- said uh, he looked over like to his left in this massive arena and said this whole concert I've seen a young man over here with a sign that says it's his sixth birthday and he said this is your sixth birthday buddy and like a pin could drop with you know thousands of people in this auditorium and you hear this little voice say yes and he goes, hey, you want to come up here and hang out with us for a second? And by the way, this was going to be the last song of the concert. It was their encore. And of course, he said yes. He and his mom start to make their way to the stage. And um, this uh, lead singer, this band, massive rock star, uh, could not have been sweeter with this little six-year-old boy and uh, talked to him through everything. And he actually had him intro the band, which was kind of cool. He also asked him if he would want to sit next to him during the last song in this uh, concert. And so he, he bends down and he picks up this little six-year-old boy and sat him on, I guess, a speaker or something on the stage, a monitor. And the band begins to play this song that actually is like uh, 10 minutes long. It was a long song. And the entire time, and by the way, every little thing that the rock star did with this little six-year-old uh, boy 
I kept getting choked up by it because, you know, rock stars don't do that kind of a thing normally. And, and he was just so sweet with this six-year-old boy. I kept getting choked up. And when he sat him on this speaker and they began to play this song, um, I just kind of lost it. I realized that what I was having a picture of in this moment was the picture that God has for us, the love that God has for us. In fact, I even was thinking there in that last song, this music in this massive arena is filling up the space and this little six-year-old boy, unexpected to him, is just being enveloped by the sound. I thought, you know, God's love is a lot like that for us. Now, God's bigger and better and greater than a rock star, but it was a picture to me of the way that God loves us. And you know, the word love is a word in our culture that gets used in a lot of different ways. Uh, today is the last like weekend, I think, of the NFL season before the playoffs. And you might have a love for the Cowboys or the Chiefs. Those are the two big ones around here at least. But you and I know that that is not the kind of love that we're talking about when we talk about God's love. It actually looks a lot more like a big rock star bringing a six-year-old boy up on stage to be enveloped by the song. Tonight we continue our series in the book of Romans and uh, we have made our way through four chapters. And the plan is, is to continue through this, through the uh, most of this uh, winter and, and spring, take a little break. We'll return actually to Romans through Romans, I think, 8 uh, in the fall. And so we'll be doing some other things throughout the year. But tonight we continue our series moving into Romans 5. And as we do this tonight, I, I really just want to invite you to see one thing, and it's this. The love of God secures the peace of God for the worship of God. The love of God secures the peace of God for the worship of God. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans chapter 5. And let's jump in. Look with me, if you would, beginning there at verse 1. Paul begins there in verse 1 in Romans 5 with the word, therefore. If you've been with us before, you know that when we see the word, therefore, we have to ask the question, what is the therefore what? Therefore, yeah. So we need to know why Paul is beginning this section with therefore. What follows here in Romans 5 is the, the conclusion or the summation or the result of what he's talked about, particularly in Romans chapter 4. So let's talk about what he said in Romans 4. Romans 4, Paul uses the story of Abraham's faith to show that Abraham became righteous not because of something that he did, his work, his action, but because of his trust in or his belief in the promise of God. Now, as we come to Romans 5, Paul is going to begin to talk about what the righteousness of God means for us. In other words, up until this point, what Paul has primarily done is explained what the gift of righteousness is, and now we're going to begin to see what the the, uh, the blessings of righteousness are. And Romans 5.1 is the first example. Look there if you would with me. When God justifies us, 
This changes our relationship with God, and we now have peace with God in our relationship with him. Now, why would Paul point out that we now have peace with God? Well, the problem, uh, first of all, as we think about this word peace, is that you and I, uh, in much the way we just talked about love, our typical definitions of peace uh, don't really capture the weight of what Scripture means here when it says peace. When we use the word peace, we use it to describe, for example, what we're looking for in a big decision, right? How many times have you said, have you heard people around you say, I've decided to take a certain job because I prayed about it and I had peace about it? Or, or maybe we mean by peace it's to describe the happiness of moments in life that are restful, right? Like there is just something about our, our family a, a couple weeks ago went to Sequoia State Park. And while we were there, it was so peaceful. It was amazing. But when Paul uses the word peace here, he is saying that the hostility, the conflict, the separation between us and God has now ended through the work of Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Listen, friends, this presupposes, this is why Paul is saying this, this presupposes that there was hostility towards God because of our sin. Or Paul wouldn't have to say this, right? Remember back in Romans 1, Paul told us that God created the world, and in this creating of the world, uh, this creation of the world, it revealed his wrath towards the ungodliness that is in our humanity. And friends, our natural disposition towards God is one of hostility. It's one of enmity. In order for us to see that God has made peace through Jesus, we must admit that we are the problem. We are the reason for that hostility. And only then can we begin to see the magnificence of his grace through the work of Jesus that God is no longer set against us because of our sin. Rather, he has made peace with us and now is for us. Now look with me, if you would, there at verse 2. One of the other realities here that comes through justification and is connected to the peace of God is that those who are in Christ have a new standing in or position with God. Ephesians 2 and 3 says it this way, we have access in one spirit to the Father in whom we now have boldness and access with confidence through faith. See, peace with God is not just an emotional condition. It is a legal standing before God. And that legal standing grants us access where we once did not have it to the presence of a holy God, and that would be impossible were it not for the atonement of Jesus. Now, in order to understand and appreciate what follows the rest of in this passage, you have to really see how peace with God has fundamentally changed your relationship with God. It changes everything. And one of the biggest changes that the peace of God makes in the life of the Christian is one of the hardest things for you and I to wrap our heads around. It's the idea of suffering. 
Look at what Paul says there in verse 3. It's a statement that many of us have read, many of us have heard many times, but I just want you tonight, if we can, for a moment, let the weight and the, the reality of this verse sink in. Paul is saying something to us here that you and I struggle with deeply. Listen, this is what Paul says. He says, we are to rejoice in our sufferings. How does that land on you? On its surface, I think if we were honest, it is a bizarre statement, right? It is strange, unexpected. Why would Paul say this? Well, the first answer to that question is what he says right before it. Look there in verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice that precedes the statement on rejoicing in our sufferings. What does that have to do with rejoicing in our sufferings? See, when a person is justified by God, made right before God, and has peace with God, there is something that happens on the inside of us. Our appetites change. Our loves change. What begins to happen and hopefully happens over a lifetime is that there is a, a new appetite for the glory of God in your life. When peace with God becomes what you have tasted, you have a new love and a new affection for who God is and what he has done and the mercy that you have experienced. See, peace with God leads to joy in everything that God is. Those who have tasted of God's mercy love God's glory. Let me say it this way. The first way that peace with God impacts how we suffer well is that it reorients us. It causes us not to be overly burdened with the effects of suffering, which are real and heavy and deep, not though to be overly burdened with the effects of suffering over and above the glory of God. The glory of God is our focus, is our priority, even in the midst of suffering. But there is another way that the peace of God impacts our suffering. Many of us feel when we are going through suffering, some of you are going through suffering right now, in this moment, some of you have been through deep suffering. The reality is that for most of us, if not all of us, the last two years that we have walked through has, has a, a amounted to a lot of suffering. And some of you feel that that suffering is pointless. Some of you feel like the suffering that you have walked through has no meaning. Let me say this again even more emphatically. Though you may feel that, Paul's saying to us, rejoice in our sufferings because there is never a time in a believer's life where bad things are only bad. Or said another way, hard is hard. Suffering is suffering. But hard is not always bad. Listen, nothing, 
Nothing in the life of a believer is ever meaningless or worthless. Followers of Jesus can rejoice in suffering because somehow, some way, it is a part of God's kind and merciful plan to move us and all of creation towards His glory. This is what makes Christians different when it comes to suffering. Man, it doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that it isn't hard. But there is something in the life of a true believer where followers of Jesus can rejoice in suffering because of what they know about suffering. Look there at verses 3 and 4. First, they know that there is a progression in it. It produces things. It produces endurance, which is another way of saying you are growing in your ability to bear up under really difficult circumstances and not quit. To keep going. To finish strong. And then that endurance produces something else. It produces character, which is the idea of proving that you really who you really are who you claim to be. And then character produces hope. In some mysterious way, suffering rather than threatening hope in your life actually increases it. At least it can. Think of it this way. Hope is like a muscle. It will not be strong if it goes unused. It is typically only in suffering that we have to exercise our hope muscle. Now, Paul does not fully explain how this all happens. In some ways, the, the way that he makes this progression it isn't intended for us to say how we maybe move from endure, a character to endurance or endurance to hope in, in, in sort of like a, a linear progression. But rather, what he's trying to say here is that there is movement in suffering. There is meaning even in suffering. It is not a pointless experience leading to nowhere. It produces some amazing spiritual realities in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Suffering through endurance proves that you are the real deal. Suffering demonstrates that there is a depth to what you believe. Suffering proves that peace with God can go the distance. It can walk through the valley. It can give us assurance that it, there is never, ever anything that ever happens which is pointless. Can you say that that's your experience when you suffer? Is your suffering producing these things in your life? Now, there is another way here. Paul says that peace with God helps us in our suffering. And this is, again, one that many of us struggle with, particularly in the midst of real suffering, real hardship. Look there at verse 5. Paul says that this hope that suffering mysteriously produces does not put us to shame. We know this principle, right? To believe something only to have it not really work or hold fast to something when it's most important to us and, and then it falls through and we feel shame that it didn't happen. Paul is assuring us here that looking at suffering through this lens, this lens of, of not being put to shame, is not silly. 
It's not irresponsible to look at it that way. He is saying actually something very profound. He is actually saying the expression of what it means to know that you are loved by God is that you aren't experiencing shame in your suffering. Now Paul goes on in verse 5 to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. This is like a whole nother sermon, honestly. And, And how the Holy Spirit is in our lives and his connection, then he helps connect us to the love of God. By the way, here in verse 5, this is the first time that the love of God, the idea of the love of God appears in Romans. And here's what Paul is saying here. He is saying that the Holy Spirit has been given to us in order to assure us that we are deeply loved by God, especially in the depths of suffering. Some of us really doubt the love of God in suffering. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit personally dwells in the heart of every believer, Sort of like a a down payment of a future redemption. And the Holy Spirit personally dwells in the heart of every believer to bear witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. So it is the spirit who gives us this supernatural assurance that suffering, while extremely difficult, is actually for our good. I think a good question for us to ask here as Paul reminds us of the Spirit's role is, do we look to the Spirit in this way in the midst of our suffering? Have we experienced the assurance of the Spirit in the midst of suffering because we have looked to the Spirit in this way? As we move into verse six, I believe that we are entering into one of the most amazing passages in all of the scripture. It's all connected to what we just talked about on the heels of talking about the love of God being poured into our hearts. Paul begins to beautifully lay out the depths and the riches of that love for us. And once again, Paul contrasts God and and humanity and we see the way that God comes to the rescue of helpless sinners. Look there if you would at verse six. Paul begins his explanation of God's love by describing our condition as being those who are weak and ungodly. And the point that Paul is trying to make here is that uh, God's love comes to people who are in need. People who are willing to admit that they are weak, who are willing to admit that they are ungodly. The point in these verses is that God shows love to those kinds of people because those are the kinds of people he can spiritually rescue. Or said another way, God loves people before they stop their rebellion. God's love, friends, God's love was set on you through the death of Christ before there was ever an inkling of love or desire for God on your part. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? That's the point of the word while, which Paul uses three times in verses 6 through 10. Paul is trying to say it was while you were weak, it was while you were ungodly, it's while you were enemies, God pursued you. God loved you first. And this idea, honestly, is of love that, that God would pursue us in the midst of our ungodliness and our weakness is completely counterintuitive to the way that our culture acts heard Ryan say at the top of our our service the idea of 
of forgiveness, true forgiveness in our culture. It's just one of those things that seems to be getting lost. This is also another one, and it's really tied to the same idea. What does it look like for you and I to love others well? Because the way that you and I typically deal with the issue of love or love for someone else is if we get hurt by that person, we don't love the person that hurt us. And look, there are situations where people have hurt you in in real and meaningful ways. And I'm not talking about overlooking sin. But you and I, we don't typically die for other people who are against us because we love them. That's what Paul is pressing here in verse 7. Paul is saying it would make sense to die for someone who deserved it because of their morality, they were righteous, or to die for someone who was kind to you, a good person. But to die for someone who is against you? To die for someone who was ungodly, who is still sinning? Paul is trying to say what Jesus has done through the cross is scandalous. It goes against everything you and I feel, all right? To die for people who not only do not appreciate what you're doing, but who are also resistant to your sacrifice, seems like such a waste. But that is exactly what Jesus did. He moved towards you before you had your act cleaned up. In other words, the prerequisite wasn't that we were qualified, it was that we weren't. Friend, don't miss this. If you're here tonight and you're hearing the gospel story for the first time, the story of what Jesus has done for you, you can come to Jesus today. He loved you. He died for you as you are. You do not have to clean up to come to Jesus. You give up and come to Jesus. And once you've tasted this grace, for many of us here who are following Jesus, it it should begin to change the way that you see yourself. It humbles you. It creates a heart of worship in your soul. It, It makes it unthinkable and despicable even to glory in yourself when God rescued you as a sinner from your sin. And it makes you run back to God's grace when you still show your imperfections. It also moves you towards other people who have hurt you or have, have um, you know, done something to you that has offended you even. God's grace does something in the life of a Christian that is so counterintuitive to what our culture, how, how they act. When we experience this grace, it gives us this assurance and comfort that God has saved us and it is that same God who will keep us to the end. Instead of worrying about other people's opinions of us, the ones whose opinion matters the most, it's already been settled. God says, I love you. Now look with me if you would at the second aspect of God's love here in verse 9. This is an even more personal section, I think. In the earlier chapters of Romans, Paul has talked about justification through redemption and through faith, but now he adds another aspect to the gospel diamond. He says that there is Also, justification through the blood of Jesus. To say that we are justified through his blood is to connect 
the sacrifice of Christ to that Old Testament sacrificial system we've talked about before. In that system, reconciliation was only possible through death. That is what the blood of Jesus required and accomplished in the cross. I love this. We also find the first use in Romans of the word saved in verse 9. This word saved has gotten a little bit of critique within evangelicalism uh, in the last couple of decades. Uh, To say that you are saved is actually a biblical idea here. The word, I think, saved actually serves in this passage as the bridge between the problem of our sinfulness and the beauty of reconciliation. We said earlier that we are saved from God's wrath. But then look there at verse 10. I I really think in our passage tonight, the love of God is reaching a real crescendo here. Paul connects being God's enemies and then being reconciled through the death of Jesus. Listen, friends, God not only set his love on us, he demonstrated that love through the death of his son even when we were against him. He made peace with God. He reconciled us back to himself. That's what it means to be reconciled, right? To be restored in your relationship. So this is what it means, friends. It means that we are now friends with God. Here's what I love about the Holy Spirit. Um, I typically, rarely do I talk to the worship leaders who pick the songs. And uh, tonight, if if you noticed... Um, we sang a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, an old hymn. That wasn't planned. But the truth of that song is the truth of what Paul is trying to say to us right now. Through reconciliation, your relationship has been so restored with God, you are now friends with God. And I, I don't mean this sort of, you know, and there's another thing that's happened, I think, in the last couple decades with in evangelical, uh, evangelicalism, this sort of um, thing where, like, we've got to not, we can't talk about God as a friend, like he's just transcendent and other, right? That is true. But friends, God is near. He's come near. He's restored our relationship with him. And it's a biblical idea to say that our relationship has been so restored, we are now friends with God. And we're going to see in the weeks to come a lot more of what that means, but here's the big idea. It means that if you are a Christian here tonight, God is more like a father than a judge. There's also something here that relates to the future. And this is another sermon I wish we could spend more time in, but it's central to the argument of the text that Paul is making here. Verse 10 is basically saying that if God has done all of this, then surely we will be saved in the end by the life of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you and I can find assurance of our salvation. And that assurance, that hope for the future, does not rest on our ability to stay the course. It rests on God's ability to love us, and he does, and he will. Now, finally, if you would look with me at verse 11, this is the conclusion to what Paul has said since verse 1 of Romans 5, where we started this evening. After talking about wonderful truths related to justification and peace with God and endurance and suffering and 
God's love and now reconciliation. Paul is reminding us that all of those things point to something else, actually. I want you to notice what that, that Paul is saying here. He's saying that all of these wonderful truths should lead in the life of a believer to rejoicing. We've already talked about it, rejoicing in our sufferings, rejoicing in the glory of God. But what Paul is wanting to reiterate here at the very end of this passage, he's wanting us to to remember the work of God should lead to the worship of God. Here's the one thing I want you to see this evening. The love of God secures the peace of God or the worship of God. And let me just add this, at all times, right? We've talked a lot about suffering. Sometimes we wanna push pause on believing that God loves us or that we have peace with him in suffering. Paul's point here is said, don't do that. He is saying that the, the love of God secures peace with God that should lead then to the worship of God at all times. See, salvation is not mainly about the salvation sinners rather and don't miss this it is about the adoration of God the redemption and reconciliation of sinners is the platform on which God is magnified and this rejoicing in God is accomplished through the work of Jesus it's through him that reconciliation is possible Jesus is the means by which we are saved and God is praised. See, friends, the tragedy of Romans 1 and 2 was the way that you and I reject not just God's laws or his existence, but even more, it was the rejection of God as God. So what does God do in response to that? Not what we do, not what our culture does, He pursues helpless, powerless, and rebellious people by killing his own son for their sins so that then you and I, as it says here, can exult in God. It's a fancy word for rejoice. To rejoice in God means that you are banking everything, including your eternal destiny, on the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. In your conversion, in your suffering, in your doubts, in your failures, in your seasons of blessing, you can say in, the, in your heart of hearts, blessed be the name of the Lord. And now you want to worship God for all that he is with who, all that you are. Friends, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's as if God invites us up on stage to be enveloped with his love. The love of God secures the peace of God for the worship of God at all times. Let's pray together.